Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Double Reel, your top destination for nerdy film chat. Part 3 sequels are a tricky thing to get right, which is why I've had to resist the temptation to change everything beyond all recognition and pack it with gimmicks such as 3D, Tobey Maguire dancing awkwardly, a comedy sidekick and a shaved Sigourney Weaver. That's not rhyming slang by the way. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. You can find me on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast and should take you to my profile. You're welcome to give me feedback on the podcast or your own thoughts on the films I discussed, or any other film-related thoughts you feel like sharing. I'm also on Instagram with the same title as my Twitter handle, and there's also a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Like the previous instalments, the podcast has a monthly magazine format with several regular segments, and like last month, I've split the latest into two halves, so you can have an intermission if you want. Here's what's coming up in this month's episode. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, including various films I've watched. Then I'll walk you through a classic or more worthy film from my list of films I've been meaning to make time for instead of watching the same old stuff on TV. This month, it's the 1955 French suspense classic Les Diaboliques. There's also another special guest interview, James Adamson, in conversation with James Adamson. This month we're looking at the Oscars and how often they don't give the award to the most deserving candidate. The first half of that interview closes out part one of the episode, and the second half of that interview opens part two. My hidden gem feature follows that, in which I draw your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which is about Ridley Scott's debut film, The Duelists. And in The One That Got Away, I cover an intriguing story about a film that never got made that I wish we'd got the chance to see. This month it's David Cronenberg's version of Total Recall. To finish, we have a remake Hate Watch, which this month covers the controversial political hot potato that was 2016's female-led remake of Ghostbusters. But first, some messages from listeners via the podcast magazine letters page. Quite a few people have had suggestions of Korean and other Asian cinema classics that need to be on mine and everyone else's watch list. Some of this are definitely on my list already, and I'll be adding some more. Uh, Some of the suggestions included Battle Royale, a great film, a total must-watch, Memories of Murder, The Host, The Wailing, A Tale of Two Sisters, recent Oscar winner Parasite, Age of Shadows, The Handmaiden, A Hard Day, The Man from Nowhere, a great Korean action thriller, Cairo, a.k.a. Pulse, uh, a Japanese film called Departures, which also won an Academy Award back in the day. The Night Comes For Us, which apparently is a great Indonesian film in the style of The Raid. I looked this up and it stars Iko Uwais from The Raid Films, who is amazing, so I'll stick that straight in my watch list. And also One Cut of the Dead, which apparently needs you to stick it out for the first 20 minutes, then it all comes together. My Asian cinema watch list is really growing and it's good to see there's a a big fan base for them out there. Uh, Thanks to everyone who sent in those suggestions, uh, including Kamara's Tash, Mickey V., Cluffy, I assume none of these are your real names, Lexington, Marty Moose, AJ the Mackham, and Snugster. Thanks also to Cypher, who sent a link to a great list of Korean films to catch up on, which if you don't mind, I will share on the socials for all to see. Please keep the suggestions coming. NY Mackham, who was so forthcoming about Punch Drunk Love last month, had a recommendation for my Hidden Gem section. He said, have you ever seen CSA, The Confederate States of America? It's kind of a mockumentary history set in the present day, but as if the Confederates won the Civil War. Uh, Well, it sounds intriguing, so I'm going to add that to my list of future items as well. AIT UK7, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, asked, when can we expect you to mention Ghostbusters 2016 in the remake Hate Watch? Well, your wish is granted, but I won't be granting your wish of adding live slam poetry to the podcast because there's a line you don't cross. 
Son of Stan said she enjoyed the pod, but it covers a lot of areas and films she doesn't know that well. She's more into classic noir and older films. So just for you, I'm trying to add more films from that era to the repertoire. Your suggestions including the act of violence from 1948 and two Van Heflin vehicles, The Prowler and The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. I'll have a look into those. Albay3037 is back asking, have you managed to watch the new Eurovision film yet? If so, what did you think? Well, the monthly roundup is in just a minute, so we'll see, won't we? And finally, Riffraff, who by the username has presumably just finished doing the time warp, says, how about featuring some Raymond Chandler adaptations and Elmore Leonard adaptations? There's more of them than you think. Well, that's an excellent idea. Thank you. I'll look into it. And now for a regular roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd. In a non-lockdown world, this might involve me looking at the cinema listings and deciding what I might be able to get out and see this month. As it is, I'm looking at the streaming listings and deciding if any of the new releases are worth paying £15 just to watch on telly. There was, however, one opportunity to go to the cinema, a drive-in cinema, in fact, which was a first for me. As always, I don't go very much into the month's film news as there are better sources than me out on the internet. I would like to pick out one piece of news though this month, which was the recent passing of actor Maurice Roves, aged 83. He was born in Sunderland, like me, although he grew up in Scotland, and he was a stalwart of film and television for many years. As well as being a great character actor whose name was not known to everyone, but he could be spotted in all sorts of varied roles, he holds a special place thanks to his appearances in action classics like The Eagle Has Landed, Who Dares Wins, and Last of the Mohicans. He will be missed. So here's my roundup of what I watched this month on a variety of platforms. I've noticed that my film watching options are quite different in a month when ITV4 is showing nothing but the fucking snooker 24 hours a day. Although perhaps that's a good thing and I ended up dipping more into my DVD shelf and streaming watch list instead. First thing I watched was Spider-Man Homecoming. My wife wanted to see if the new Spider-Man films are any good so we started with the first one. Uh, as When I watched it the first time I enjoyed it. It's very bright and breezy, and Tom Holland is by far the best Spider-Man, in my opinion. I never got on with Tobey Maguire, and while I liked Andrew Garfield, the films he was in weren't really all that great. He's the first version of the character who's actually the right age, more or less, and they've uh, made him the kind of wise-cracking motormouth that he is in the comics. It was good that we didn't have to see his origin story again, as the story's been rebooted a few times lately, and it really would have been labouring the point this time. Then I watched Parasite. I missed this when it was out in the cinema, and I was very excited to see this, having seen all the awards and rave reviews it got. This was our movie night film, so my wife and I got the baby settled and sat down to watch this properly as a bit of an event. It was a bit strange going into it because I purposely tried to avoid hearing too much about what the film was about, uh, to avoid spoilers and things, but what I had heard was all the reviews about how mind-blowing it is, how it takes various 180-degree turns and surprises. That meant I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop while I was watching it instead of being 100% surprised by new developments. That's kind of inevitable these days because it's so hard to go into a film completely unaware of what happens. For those who haven't yet seen it, it's about a very poor family in Korea who live in very difficult circumstances, almost underground, who get the opportunity to work for an extremely wealthy family and use all sorts of tricks and schemes to work their way into the household. I don't want to say too much about the story, but suffice to say all sorts of very eventful things happen. I really enjoyed it, and while I haven't seen all of last year's contenders, I have no problem with this getting the Best Picture Oscar. There's been a bit of a debate about the story, as some thought it was very negative regarding the poor and the underclass, portraying them as dishonest opportunists to be afraid and wary of. 
I thought it was a lot more complex than that and more about the massive divide between rich and poor in society. I liked how it was more about showing you the two different worlds uh, and aside from the main story which is highly dramatic and so on, it gives you a lot to think about without banging you over the head with the message. As you'd expect from Bong Joon-ho, it's very well done with some excellent performances, especially the female leads. Then Ant-Man and the Wasp was on my list, uh, just decided to catch up on this as I hadn't seen it when it came out. I thought it was perfectly decent, although this kind of a minor league Marvel character in the film is not one of the stronger MCU films. There was a lot of quantum stuff being discussed and people flicking switches and jumping into quantum states and hidden worlds and fixing things in about five minutes flat. And I imagine actual physicists who work for decades on these concepts wish it was that easy. There's nothing here to take that seriously and the story's a bit routine, but it was quite enjoyable and there was some nice comedy stuff with Paul Rudd, Randall Park and the Ant-Man sidekicks and uh, Rudd and Evangeline Lilly make a nice fun team to watch. I also watched Puss in Boots. This just happened to be on in the background early evening. Kind of watched it as wallpaper while I was getting the dinner ready and doing the washing up. I'd seen it before, I think, maybe not all the way through. It's perfectly decent stuff, not the best kids animation, but by no means the worst. Uh, 21 Bridges, I streamed this having missed it when it came out. It's a proper tough New York film starring Chadwick Boseman from Black Panther. His character has a reputation with the police as he's got quite a large number of shootings of suspects on his record. Then an armed robbery gone wrong results in a load of police officers being shot dead and there's a manhunt to catch them. The island of Manhattan is closed off by shutting the 21 bridges of the title and Chadwick Boseman's character has a race against time to find the suspects and solve an increasingly complicated case. It's not hugely new or innovative but it delivers everything you would want from a tough cop thriller like this so it's absolutely worth watching if you like that sort of thing. Bozeman is very good in the lead, and there's a good supporting cast, including J.K. Simmons and Sienna Miller in an unusual role for her, showing how versatile she is as an actor. So, inspired by 21 Bridges, I threw together an impromptu top 10 New York cop thrillers. They had to be where police are the main characters, uh, so not gangster films or other types of film that just feature the police, and it has to be set in New York. The best of these, let's be honest, are better than 21 Bridges, but uh, I'd like to suggest you watch The French Connection, Serpico, Prince of the City, Inside Man, The Naked City, Cruising, Copland, The Taking of Pelham 123, original version, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Clockers. I'd like to give an honourable mention as well for Ridley Scott's Black Rain, because it starts in New York and the main characters are NYPD detectives. Of course then it goes off to Japan and disqualifies itself from this top 10. Another film I haven't put in the top 10 because it's very flawed, I would like to mention Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon. It's problematic in a lot of ways, and Cimino is a very problematic director, but this film is worth watching just to see what you think of it, for the performance of the amazing John Lone, whose film appearances are all too rare, and for the final shootout. Next on my list of films I watched this month was FX Murder by Illusion. This was an old 80s favourite which I rented and watched dozens of times back in the day. It's about a special effects expert who is recruited by the feds to stage a fake assassination of a mobster who's testifying his way into witness protection, uh, and he gets caught up in a criminal conspiracy. It's great stuff, especially for film nerds, to get a glimpse of how practical special effects are made. I also watched Christine, the old John Carpenter adaptation of the Stephen King novel about a possessed car. I mentioned it in the first episode of the podcast, and then it happened to pop up on Netflix just when I had an hour and a half of sofa time. I said at the time it wasn't the best John Carpenter film or the best Stephen King adaptation, and uh, while it's fun, it is a bit meh. I seem to remember thinking the book wasn't all that great either when I read it, but it was a long time ago. I uh, also watched The Old Guard. This is a new film with Charlize Theron, an action film with fantasy elements. She plays the leader of a secret special forces team that for some reason can't die. 
and there's a mission full of double crosses and hidden agendas, just as a brand new immortal person is found and joins their team. It came with the dreaded Netflix original tag, which has been a badge of poor quality lately, but it was pretty good. A lot of it was the usual violent action type stuff, but there were a few new things they threw in which put a different spin on it. Charlize Theron is really good at the action stuff, as well as being a good actress, of course, and the rest of the cast did a nice job. Uh, the director, Gina Prince-Bythewood, did a decent job as well. I've not seen anything else of hers before, but she struck a nice balance between the action and the story and characters. Quite enjoyed it, worth a watch if you like that sort of thing. I watched another new film on Netflix this month, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. So I did get around to watching it, Albe. This is one of those Will Ferrell six-word film pictures he's done quite a few of down the years. In this case, Will Ferrell as an Icelandic musician. I quite enjoyed this. Uh, whether you do the same will depend on your tolerance level for the usual stuff you get from Will Ferrell, playing his standard goofy, incident-prone man-child who has some life lessons to learn. Not many big surprises. It does a nice jokey depiction of the Nordic countries and culture. American tourists get a bit of stick. And obviously, if you've ever watched a Eurovision Song Contest in real life, you recognise a lot of what's going on here. Similar to something like Blades of Glory, it takes advantage of the fact that the setting is all a bit camp and over the top, but it does it in an affectionate way. They've borrowed a little bit from Father Ted's Eurovision episode in terms of plotline, but I don't mind that too much. It's got a good cast, all of whom seem to be having good fun with their roles. Dan Stevens is a lot of fun as the Russian contestant, and Rachel McAdams gives it some welly as well. It's worth a watch if you like the Will Ferrell sort of style of film. It's not as funny as an actual Eurovision Song Contest, but it's a good substitute given it was cancelled this year. And now the big film event of the month. I booked to see Rocketman at a drive-in cinema. I was very excited to be going to the cinema again after all these months. If I'd known how difficult it was going to become to go because of lockdown, at the start of the year I might not have let the usual two hours pointless wrestling with the fucking Vitality app to get ticket vouchers put me off going a couple of times. The way this trip panned out, a neighbour happened to mention someone was doing drive-in showings on the grounds of a stately home within reasonable driving distance. We thought it would be nice to try out the drive-in experience and going to the pictures again. And of course, we could take the baby along, because you can't exactly hire a babysitter right now. Looking up the website, it was mostly older classics um, on offer, like Back to the Future, Jurassic Park and so on, and a smattering of newer films that were out last year. I thought my wife was going to want to see Dirty Dancing, but she picked out Rocketman because we haven't seen it. So Rocketman it was. When we mentioned to the neighbours we were going, it turned out a load of us had all had the same idea, and we'd all booked to see the same film on the same night. We did actually try to go in convoy, but it didn't work out that way. One of the group got a flat tyre just before we were setting off, and it was really busy getting into the venue, and we were getting shuffled into different queues, so you couldn't really stick together. Not that it would have made much difference. If we'd stuck together, we'd only been able to give each other a little wave through the windows while we were watching it. But we got there, we managed to get the baby fed and settled just before the start of the film, got set with our dinner in a big Tupperware box, and watched the film. As for the film itself, obviously it's the kind of... Uh, Elton John's story told in musical format using his songs. With a title like Rocket Man, no doubt Donald Trump would have been confused to find out that Kim Jong-un was so into glittery costumes and novelty sunglasses. It's not a film I would go out of my way to see normally as I'm not that big a fan of Elton John's music, um, but I did hear the director Dexter Fletcher had done a very good job of it. And it was good. It was a kind of fantastical flashback of his life looking back while he was in rehab in about 1990. All the performances were very good, Taron Edgerton obviously, and also Bryce Dallas Howard as his mum. And the musical numbers were well done. I'm not a big musicals fan, some I like, but it's not a genre I watch a great deal of, but it was very good. Um, Dexter Fletcher seems to have a real knack for the musical genre, having done the Proclaimers film as well. He also finished off the recent Queen film after Brian Singer went off the rails. 
And watching Rocketman, I think a film done 100% by Dexter Fletcher, his way, would have been a lot better than the standard rags to riches to drugs to redemption story that we eventually got in Bohemian Rhapsody. As far as the driving experience goes, well, I was chuffed to get to a cinema screening and it was kind of an adventure, but it was a bit of a grind as it took so long to get in before the showing and out afterwards. It meant leaving the house at 8pm and not getting home till 1 in the morning, which would have been hell if the baby hadn't settled. Add to that, the screen was surprisingly small when we got there, and your view tends to be a bit restricted with other vehicles in front of you. So it, it's never going to replace the real cinema once everything gets back to normal, but in the meantime it was great to get out and see something. I might go again, but if for example this turns out to be the only way to see something new like the new Nolan film Tenet, I'm not sure I'd do that. Someone's doing picnic screenings in the local park during the day, so we might try that out next instead. The next segment, as always, is my look at a classic or highly recommended film that I need to get round to watching instead of slumping in front of the television and consuming the same 12 films the TV channels are still showing from last month. Perhaps like me, you have classic or more worthy films that you want to see or feel you ought to watch instead of the same old things you've seen before and the mainstream middle-of-the-road stuff that TV and streaming services are always promoting. I personally have a bad habit of putting off watching those classics because it's never quite the right time and sometimes I do get a mental block about a film that's hard to shift. But for the sake of variety and to fill this gap in my podcast schedule, I'm making more of an effort to get them watched. I crossed Lady Vengeance and Punch Drunk Love off my list in previous episodes, so the rest of my list looks like this. Das Boot extended version with the continued bilingual quandary it poses my alphabetical filing system. Wages of Fear and Lady Diabolique, two black and white subtitle classics my wife isn't that keen to watch. David Cronenberg's Crash with controversial content that isn't for everyone. Train to Busan, the Korean zombie film I haven't got round to. Hell or High Water, the modern day western slash heist film starring Jeff Bridges. Let the Right One In, the vampire story with a twist I've been putting off watching for years now. Uh, the Assassin, uh, the Asian period picture which I didn't like the first time but I've been persuaded to give another try. And to keep the list going, I've added two new titles, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, which comes highly recommended, and the Japanese film Departures, which a podcast listener has argued for so forcefully. This month, the film I chose was to give more representation to older black and white classics in honour of film buff and friend of the podcast, Son of Stan. The best fit to that description on my list was Les Diaboliques. This is a 1955 suspense thriller in French with subtitles. It's described by many as a French Hitchcock film because of its style and subject matter, and it nearly was a Hitchcock film. The novel the film was based on was a huge bestseller in France, and Hitchcock was interested in buying the rights to film it, but a French director got in first and Hitchcock missed out. He turned his attention instead to the next novel by the same writers, which became his masterpiece, Vertigo. I followed my usual routine, picking up the Blu-ray case and putting it by the TV to remind me to watch it. I tried not to think about it sitting there and glaring at me, and finally made the time to watch this on my own. The story of the film is classic thriller material and has been much imitated since. It centres around a very unpleasant man who has a wife and a mistress, and is abusive towards both of them. The wife and mistress know each other, become friendly, and hatch a plot to murder the husband and make it look like an accident. But then the body disappears, and they fear someone has seen them commit the crime and is blackmailing them. You can see why Hitchcock wanted to get his hands on this story. The French director who got in first is a man called Henri-Georges Clouseau. 
He was a very big name in French cinema up until the end of the 1950s and was sometimes called the French Hitchcock. His surname is believed to be the inspiration for the Peter Sellers character Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther films as the director Blake Edwards was a Francophile and a fan of French films. Henri-Georges Clouseau had some controversies during his film career. In the early 1930s he worked in Berlin translating or rewriting German films for French audiences but not long after the Nazis took over in Germany he was fired from his job for being too friendly with Jewish filmmakers and he returned to France. Then in the 1940s he attracted controversy from the other end of the spectrum as the only way to make films in France under German occupation was to work in the system where all films were approved by the Nazi-controlled and German-owned film company Continental. He made a film called Le Corbeau, which the Nazi and Vichy authorities banned for not towing the party line, and which in turn the French resistance condemned as Nazi propaganda. I can only imagine how hard it would be to please everyone in that situation. He was fired by the authorities, and then straight after the war was banned for life from making films in France because of his association with Continental, a ban that was later cut down to just two years. From the late 1940s onwards, he then had a hugely successful career in what was then known as the classic French cinema style. But after 1960, he became a bit of a hate figure, as the new wave led by people like Jean-Luc Godard condemned him as representing an outdated way of making films, and urged people not to watch his films at all, or even let him make any more. To say French cinema has a complicated history is something of an understatement. His best-known film was Wages of Fear, the other black-and-white classic currently on my list. This is the story of a group of desperate men hired to transport truckloads of unstable nitroglycerine across the South American jungle to help put out an oil fire, knowing that one bump or crash could kill them all. It was remade as William Friedkin's Sorcerer, one of my favourite films. I know that's a bit hypocritical given how much I criticise remakes, but there you go. Wages of Fear was a huge hit and a hugely influential action film, just as Steven Spielberg, which he followed with Les Diabolique, which was also a big hit. If you want to follow through on that French Hitchcock analogy, this era was comparable to when Hitchcock did North by Northwest and then followed it up with Psycho. Watching the film now, it belongs very much to its era of the 1950s. Like Psycho, it was shocking at the time, showing murder in a more explicit way than audiences had seen before. Although I think Psycho retains a bit more power to shock because it really pushed the boundaries of violence and showed blood and brutality at a new level. Stylistically, Les Diaboliques is very 50s. Uh, the picture doesn't fit the whole of the widescreen TV, so it has black borders on the sides. And there are very artificial shots of two people driving a car with an obvious back projection behind them. The overall style of editing and action is also very much of its time, and doesn't have the same jump-cutting and brutally intense sound effects you would have in a similar film today. But still, it must have been quite something to see the original audience's reaction to this film. The story of the film obviously revolves around its murder plot, which builds up for almost an hour. The tension after that time and the murder about to happen on screen is pretty powerful even today. You start with the setup of the film, a run-down boys boarding school just outside Paris, the headmaster who is a very unpleasant man, tight-fisted, unappreciative of his wealthy wife to whom he owes his position, unconcerned about her ill health and weak heart and so callous he started having an affair with one of the women working there as a teacher right under his wife's nose. He's equally unpleasant to the staff and pupils and abusive to his mistress. Of course, this being France, the fact that the headmaster has his wife and mistress working under one roof doesn't seem to shock anyone. The mistress, played by the tall, quite tough-looking Simone Signoret, is the one who suggests the murder to the more frail wife, played by the director's real life, Vera Clouseau. The wife is devoutly religious and doesn't believe in divorce, so this is an alternative way out for her appalling treatment. 
The mistress can't leave as she needs the job and wouldn't get a reference from her boss in that situation. And she's out for blood after the husband has given her a black eye. This is a murder victim who had it coming. The film follows them as they plot to lure the husband out of town, drug him and drown him. The wife, Christina, is struggling with the morality of the act and is constantly in a state of physical and moral panic. The mistress, Nicole, is more matter-of-fact and has fewer qualms about committing murder. The structure of the film has the murder taking place halfway through the film after that tense build-up, with the second half covering the aftermath as they try to cover their tracks. Now we have a different kind of tension as there are multiple moments where they fear being found out. The body of the dead husband disappears and they fear someone is blackmailing them. And then Christina and Nicole start to turn on each other, and a veteran police detective suspects something and is on their trail. Needless to say, there are some twists and turns to how the story plays out, and the final credits of the film plead with the audience not to leak any spoilers about the ending. It's a very good film, enjoyed on the same level as older Hitchcock, and I'd say that while it's made in the 50s, it seems closer stylistically to what Hitchcock was doing in the 1940s. But no problem with that, it was still very good. It does have the problem that the modern thriller audience has seen enough of these types of film to know that there's some sort of surprise coming. And also that this is a very influential film that has been imitated a lot. So that leaves even less room for surprise. At that time as well, films tended to be very toned down compared to the source novels they were based on. So the lesbian relationship that Nicole and Christina have in the book, which provides more plausible motivation, is removed from the film with only a, a few bare hints left on screen. It still has some good shock moments, and the build-up of tension to the murder and to its aftermath are very well done and gripping. It also introduces the idea of the scruffy but dogged police detective who suspects the killers and won't let go, which inspired the TV show Columbo. As for the ending, I won't spoil it for you, but it's one that provides a few talking points for afterwards. In some ways, this is what Hitchcock, who I, I know I keep referring to, uh, called a refrigerator film. That's what he called a film which works when it's on screen, but sometime later you'll be in the kitchen opening the fridge to grab the milk and say, hang on, as some of the plot holes then spring to mind. He would call that a successful film because uh, it didn't spoil it while you were watching it. So I'm glad I watched the film and I definitely enjoyed it. I would recommend watching it, even though it might not be for everyone, but if you like an old-style suspense thriller and you don't mind it being in black and white and in French with subtitles, you'll definitely enjoy it. There is, of course, a modern English-language remake, and you should, of course, avoid it like the plague. And now for the part where you get a break from just me droning on, and you can listen to two Jameses for the price of one. This is James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson. Those of you who tuned in to last month's episode will be aware that my son James is 23, and while he doesn't share my accent, we do share a first name and a passion for film. Last time we discussed our best and worst experiences going to the cinema together, and this time we decided to look into the Oscars, specifically why they often don't seem to give their awards to the most deserving recipients. Once we got going, we realised we'd bitten off more than even a double helping of podcast episodes could chew. We had a lot to say about some of the more controversial decisions the Academy made over the years. To avoid the running time getting ridiculous, the main episodes include the highlights of our discussion, and a fuller version of the conversation will be made available later as a bonus episode, or episodes. We talked for a long time. First, we looked at their choices of best picture over the years. I looked at the 80s and 90s, and then James covered the 2000s and 2010s. After that, we looked at some of the worst or most undeserving Oscar winners, notable snubs and injustices, and examples of people winning Oscars for the wrong performance or film. I've tried to retain a flavour of everything we discussed, 
but there will be more in the extended version, including a fuller exploration of why Hans Zimmer has been poorly treated by the Academy and why Alexandre Desplat should have his Oscars taken off him as a punishment for his involvement in A Monkey's Tale. We recorded this on Anchor FM on our phones and the audio is mostly alright, but apologies for any blurs and crackles here and there. The first part of this conversation, Best Picture Winners and Losers from 1980 to date, will close out part one of this month's episode, and the concluding part on various other snubs and injustices will open up part two. We kick off at the beginning of the 1980s, uh, and just a quick apology from me before we start for a factual error. Uh, While the point stands that it was a huge injustice that it wasn't even nominated for Best Film or Best Director, I was wrong to say that Do the Right Thing wasn't nominated for anything. It received two nominations, Best Supporting Actor and Best Original Screenplay, but won neither. Apart from that, here we go. Hello and welcome to another edition of James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson. I'm not interviewing myself. My son is also called James Adamson. If you listened to episode two, you'd have heard our lively discussion of our best and worst experiences going to the cinema together. We've got a different topic this month. Uh, We're talking about the Oscars and specifically we're talking about how the Oscars have a reputation perhaps of not uh, giving their awards to the best recipients. Uh, and sometimes those reasons might be political, sentimental, or sometimes they just went completely mad and no one can explain why they gave the awards that they did. Now, I personally think certain eras or decades have been worse than others for that. So James and I are going to do a, a comparison. Um, what we're going to focus first on Best Picture, the, the, you know, the, the award that was given out to Best Film, not Foreign Film. Um, I'm going to look at the, the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, and then James, other James is going to look at the 2000s and the 2010s, and we'll see if any era we think is better or worse than others. But firstly, welcome, James. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you very much for having me. Um, raring to go. Um, absolutely ready to watch you dissect the 1980s. Right. So let's make a start. So the, the, I don't personally think the 80s was the worst decade, but it got off to a hell of a bad start because in 1980, uh, I think a lot of people would look back and say that the best film that came out that year was Raging Bull. Uh, other classic films that came out that year were The uh, Elephant Man, The Empire Strikes Back, American Gigolo, uh, and The Shining. Now, something like Empire Strikes Back in a horror film like The Shining might not get considered, but I think Raging Bull it, it regularly tops people's best films of the 80s, some people's best film of all time. Um, the Oscar didn't go to Raging Bull. It went to Ordinary People. What, what I would say on that is Ordinary People is about affluent um, people with kind of dysfunctional personal lives who live in... Uh, a nice house in California, uh, and, and that's who votes for the Oscars. Uh, and you'll you'll see over the years that films about that kind of topic, the Oscars love it because it reminds them of them or their own relationships with their families. But right there, I think the eighties does it does not start well. I'm I have to admit I've not seen Ordinary People, so your comment on it will be obviously much better than mine. But I have seen The Elephant Man and obviously Raging Bull. Now Raging Bull is. Well, in my opinion, the, you know, the standout film from the selection that I'm looking at here. The Elephant Man is also really good. Yeah. Um, good performance from John Hurt. Obviously, Robert De Niro deserved to win for Jake LaMotta. That was just extraordinary. Um, but if you're saying to me that ordinary people didn't deserve to win and it only won because it was voted for by the people that it's basically depicting, then absolutely, I would consider that an injustice. I think it's, it's definitely a good film, and it's not like it's a bit of light comedy that has no meaning or weight. I mean, it is about a family yeah. who's lost someone uh, you know someone close to them through suicide and it, it is about kind of people dealing with shit and it is a really good film I, I don't think people you know that there will be things that i mentioned here that get me really angry that it won that ordinary people is a good film a very good film of that raging pull is a great film the problem is is that the people who are you know voting for the oscars um they have a lot more in common with the cast of ordinary people than they do with working class italian americans with um 
some you know quite serious personality issues. Um, but yeah, that's raging bull. And I mean, Scorsese has. It's not the first time that Scorsese was ill-treated. In 1976, he, he directed Taxi Driver. Um, and while I think the 70s was generally quite good, they did all go a bit mad in the set in, in 76. It could have been uh, Taxi Driver and it could have been the outlaw Josie Wales would have been my standouts for that year. And they gave it to Rocky. God bless him. Fucking hell. <laughs> and you've got, you've got to wonder, after Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, you wonder what Scorsese's doing wrong to not get the, you know, recognition. His Fucking film, Rocky. His, oh, his directorship. Wrong decade, wrong decade. We're coming up. I I think that it doesn't matter if Raging Bull's not one because The Shining didn't get a single nomination. Yeah, I mean, films like that just weren't getting a look in back then. I mean, just simple as that. It's a horror movie. Forget it. Even a Stanley Kubrick horror movie, although Stanley Kubrick wasn't particularly well, you know, treated by the Oscars either. But that that sort of film. I mean, what I, what I say about the eighties is that the eighties as a as a decade, there's always been films that are more likely to win Oscars than others, and like genre pictures tend not to do as well because I think there's this general attitude that genre pictures get awarded with lots of money at the box office. And films that win Oscars are often about kind of rewarding excellence that doesn't necessarily make as much money. And that's fair enough. I think what happened in the 80s was they almost perfected the Oscar film, films that have been absolutely machine-tooled very carefully to win awards, you know? You only got recognition through nominations, which I guess is nice to be nominated. Yeah. But, um... yeah. So ni- 1981 um, is another very middle-brow year. And the, the other thing to kind of note is that Mark Kermode, who... I'm I'm not contractually bound, but I just tend to mention him every time I do a podcast. He gave uh, sort of some interesting information about how they vote for best picture. I don't know if you if you know this, but the whatever's on the ballot, it used to be five films, and now it's ten. You're asked to vote for them in order of preference. Oh fucking hell! So your first film, your second film, you know, out of the ten. So something is your tenth favorite or fifth favorite. Something is your first favorite, and it's almost certainly been the case that a film that was nobody's actual favorite but was everybody's second or third favorite has won the Oscars some years, and that does tend to make films like you know it tends certain films get chosen for that reason. A film that's absolutely amazing but some people didn't like um, is going to get really punished. Or a film that everyone goes, yeah, that's quite good, will be like will shoot forward in the ratings. It's like the Liberal Democrat. Voting system. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, 1981, Chariots of Fire one. And look, I don't know if you've have you seen Chariots of Fire? Uh, that's the jogging one with yeah. the, the theme on. The yeah, that's right. Jogging on the beach. Fuck off! Did that win best picture? Best picture. Now the thing is, lovely music, nice stuff. Um, but it, it's the sort of film you'd show now and go, yeah, that was nice. That's a good film. But it, it doesn't like offend me that uh, that it's uh, a well thought of film. But Look at some of the other films that came out there. I think the best film that came out that year was Blowout. Nice. Ch- Chariots yeah. of Fire is, it's a true story about, you know, a, an era that people feel nostalgic about. The music is lovely and, you know, it's just one of those ones. I would bet you that that is like second or third on everybody's ballot paper. 1982. Now, my favourite film that came out in 1982 is Blade Runner, but I, you do, I do have to acknowledge that Blade Runner was screw, screwed on release. The best version of Blade Runner didn't come out until long after the you know the the awards were over so it's kind of not surprising that it wasn't nominated for and best picture the best film i you know, aside from that that came out that year was king of comedy another scorsese film which barely made it a dent in the nominations which is you, shocking that's an injustice in itself but do you think it would have won against gandhi anyway because gandhi is a very 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 good film so yeah gandhi won and i beautifully made amazingly acted epic about an important political figure so it's, I don't think it's the worst thing that it won, but I think it's harsher the King of Comedy didn't get anywhere in the nomination. So 1983, I think the best film that came out in 1983 is The Right Stuff. The film that did win was Terms of Endearment, which is straight down the line like ordinary people. 
And look, it's a really well-made film. Shirley MacLaine's a fantastic actress, and Jack Nicholson was was amazing, making a huge comeback. But if if you've seen the rights, if you haven't seen the right stuff, I urge you to go and do so. It's absolutely stonking, stonkingly brilliant film. So eighty-four. Now, the best film that came out in nineteen eighty-four is Once Upon a Time in America, but the full version of Once Upon a Time in America was never shown in America at the time. It was only shown in Europe. So I, I can't, you can't really blame the voters for a film they didn't see. Um, and I. If it's not Once Upon a Time in America, I, I have no problem with Amadeus winning Best Picture that year because I, I love Amadeus. It is a, an amazing film. It, it was always going to win, wasn't yes. it? It's about fucking Mozart. Yeah. Now, 1985 is a big controversial year. I mean, there is a lot of discussion about the nominations that were made this year. Um, now, I think the best film made that year as Akira Kurosawa was Ram. Yeah, 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 they're not going to nominate that. Absolutely. So now the the big snub or the big kind of talking point that year was that The Color Purple was released that year by Spielberg um, and it was nominated for 11 awards but didn't win any. And the, the film that actually won um, that year was Out of Africa. The, the shock of The Color Purple is that it just didn't win anything. 11 nominations for The Color Purple, including Best Picture, but he wasn't nominated for Best Director. And that's all that is a snub. I mean, out of Africa is a typical sort of nice, but not particularly, you know, insightful Oscar film. It's, it's built for Oscars and it's does not deserve in a million years to win best picture and color purple, very hard done by not to win best picture. There was almost an element of, Hey Spielberg, why are you doing this instead of Raiders of the Lost Ark and ET? We don't want you to make this kind of film. We want you to make that kind of film. Now, 1986, um, I think the best film that came out in 96 is Aliens. Uh, an action sci-fi with horror elements is not going to be, you know, uh, is not going to win all the awards um, back then. I, I, I get a feeling, though, if something as good as Alien came out now, the, the Academy, to be fair, them, might consider it more. Um, the film that did win that year was Platoon, which I think is a decent choice. I don't have a problem. Um, 1987. Now, this is an interesting because Au revoir les enfants is the best, by far, I think, the best film of 1987. Um, but again, foreign films aren't going to win. The last, em- the last Emperor is the cl- is a is a classic kind of film to win, uh, uh, you know, th- those Oscars. And look, it's absolutely beautiful film. I think it's a defensible choice. So I think you know, Full Metal Jacket probably deserved more attention. And um, it's directed by Stanley Kubrick, so it doesn't get nominated. So I know he's definitely. You will 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 we'll come back to got people who've been like really ill treated by the Oscars uh, later. But you know, Kubrick again is going to show up. So 1988, um, I think the best film uh, of that year was Cinema Paradiso, although, to be fair to the Oscars, I'm not sure it even got a proper US release in year. Uh, Rain Man was the winner, which is, it's a very middle-brow choice. And look, I think it's really good, but I think, you know, Rain Man's the kind of film that that, that speech in Tropic Thunder was all about, about what certain actors choose to portray because they know it's going to win them Oscars. Um, <laughs> there's not many other films that really jump out as maybe deserving more of a shout although Mississippi Burning was a very good film that year and might have you know might have deserved more uh, attention I think The Last Temptation of Christ is better than Rain Man though. yeah unfortunately that really divided <laughs> that really divided audiences it's, the, it's a safe year it's not as controversial yeah. so 1989 wowzers oh fucking hell the best picture winner for 1989 was Driving <laughs> Miss Daisy Fucking. Like uh, Please Do the Right Thing came out that year, was not even nominated for anything. And what what does it say that the Oscars decide to give some attention to a film about the state of race relations in the United States? And they don't give it to Do the Right Thing, they give it to Bloody Driving Miss Daisy. Dear God. That's, it's just, and, and actually, 89 is a good year. So for something as trite as 
driving this daisy to win best picture is <sighs> look, all, all done with the best of intentions right um but dearie me so the the, the 1990s um this is a bad, this is a bad day here we go and it, here we and go. it gets off to a bad start now I think the best. I think the best film of 1990 is Cyrano de Bergerac, but again, we know foreign films don't win. Oh no! We're not going to a foreign film. There was a little picture that Scorsese brought out, which a lot of people think is quite good, called Goodfellas. Um, there was also Miller's Crossing, which is another good Coen Brothers film. There's Internal Affairs, which a lot of people regard very highly, and there's uh, The Grifters, um, which is another good film. The winner of Best Picture this year is Dances with Wolves. Now, I'll tell you what, I went to see Dances with Wolves at the pictures and I liked it. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed with, with Kevin Costner for doing a nice job of directing it. It's a good film. But not only did it not deserve to beat Goodfellas to Best Picture, it also meant that because they gave, I think they gave Kevin, um, let me check this because I, I sometimes can't believe it myself that this is what happened. I've got it right. I've got it in front of me. Best director was Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves, which meant that it was a 16-year period when Martin Scorsese didn't have a Best Director Oscar, but Kevin Costner did. No. It's, it's good, fellas, isn't it? It's good. I mean, they also nominated Ghost for Best, uh, best Picture, which that's is another one that, ju that jumped out to me. That's they, you know, their the heads weren't right in the 1990s, and it's another um, snub for. But um, I do think that see what, what I'm finding here is that they're they're getting the best. This is what happens in the decades I've looked at. They get Best Picture and Best Director very wrong, but all the acting ones are pretty solid. They absolutely nailed on with uh, Kathy Bates from Misery. Oh hell yes, she's amazing. Actress. Uh, 1991. Now I think the best film in 1991 was The Fisher King. And it was it was it was recognised. I think um, Mercedes Rule got an acting award for its supporting actress. Um, the uh, yeah. Picture King is an absolutely tremendous film. Not even nominated for Best Picture. They nominated Beauty and the Beast, mm. which is all right. You know, I've not got any problem with it as a film, but it's not one of the best pictures. Yeah. I mean, Silence of the Lambs did win, and I've not really got any problems with that. No, I mean, I think, I think um, Prince of Tides was. Um, I might might need to watch that again because that some people think that was a bit hard done by. Boys in the Hood came out this year as well. Barton Fink. Um, look, the Silence of Lambs is a terrific film. It's certainly not the worst choice they made in the nineteen nineties. Nineteen ninety two. Now, I think nineteen ninety two they got it fairly right because Unforgiven won Best Picture, and that is a stunning film. Um, you look at the nominations though. Malcolm X was not even nominated for Best Picture. Oh, so it wasn't. Howard's End, A Few Good Men, Crying Game, Sentable Few, Man. Look, A Few Good Men's a, a very, very enjoyable film. It's no, it's nowhere near one of the top five best films we say. And Scent of a Woman can fuck off. <laughs> no, no, I, I, knew, I knew this was coming. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Al Pacino winning Best Actor. Uh, we, we've got a bit about, you know, actors winning for the wrong thing. And that's that's an absolute case study in that. Um, Reservoir Dogs came out that year and didn't really get much, uh, get much attention. Although, you know... Tarantino being as, as new and different as he was, he's probably not going to get recognised as much with his first film. Yeah. And then 1993 is quite a... It, it's interesting because Schindler's List won Best Picture in 1993, and I think Schindler's List is, a, is, a, is, is an amazing film. I don't mind that it won. Um, I think the best film that came out that year was uh, Naked, the Mike Lee film. The Piano is a classic example of a massively overrated film getting much more attention than it deserves. Yeah. Stacey's Age of Innocence, not even nominated. Um, the Fugitive was nominated for Best Picture, which I don't, I think The Fugitive is a good film, but it's not like that's such a groundbreaking action film that it deserves Oscars. I, I, I don't get it. Just don't get it at all. 
1994. <laughs> um, I, I let me let me see let me see just so I can. Oh fuck! <laughs> so Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. Oh no! Now the thing is, you know, some people might say Pulp Fiction is you know a little bit overrated compared to like uh, Tarantino's best. It was still an absolutely game-changing film when it came out. Shawshank Redemption also came out, which although I don't think Shawshank is close to being as good a film as Pulp Fiction, despite its elevated status in the IMDb Top 250 or whatever. But if you're if, if something that's not kind of too off the wall or too controversial is going to win, Shawshank would be a classic kind of solid Oscar-y film. But I think Forrest Gump winning Best Picture, probably an example of America likes to feel good about itself. Oscar voters like to feel good about themselves. They just went nuts for Forrest Gump. And it's not that it's a bad film. It's just, it, um, it's a hugely sentimental choice. I agree with the, the sentiment that you said Pulp Fiction is a little bit overrated. And I think personally, because you've, you said to me, Pulp Fiction is a film that you absolutely love. It's great. You love it. And I went, when I watched it for the first time, I was like, yeah, it was good. But it's not even my favorite Tarantino. It's, it's, yeah. But it's better, it's better than Forrest Gump. Yeah. And Shawshank was Again, it's another film that's really overrated. I don't even think it's the best yeah. Stephen King adaptation by Frank Darabont. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's better than far. I just want to highlight that Hans Zimmer won his only Oscar of his career this year for The Lion King. <laughs> yeah. and this, that, this that's is, clearly not his best score, right? Just keep this in mind. <laughs> so, 1995. Now, 1995 is uh, is not a bad year, actually. I mean, the 90s is actually a really good decade oh, for film. Fucking- Sorry, I've just seen what won. So, Toy Story came out in 1995. Um, also, Casino, um, which... You know, there are a lot of people making the argument that Casino's actually the better film than Goodfellas. Um, I, I, you know, I probably need to watch them both again, kind of make up my mind on that one. Usual Suspects came out, and um, Seven, Heat, Apollo 13, um, Braveheart. Bloody hell. I hate Braveheart. And I'm, as, as someone who is Scottish and lives in Scotland, it's terrible. It's... Historically, historically inaccurate. Yeah, I personally think Seven's the best film of that year. Uh, but again, it's a bit edgy to be nominated. There, there's Apollo the, all right, Babe got fucking nominated. There's, yeah, there's a number of films that would have been defensible choices. Braveheart isn't one of them. Um, 1996. Good year. Now, I think Trainspotting is the best film that came out in 1996. But I totally get why it, it wouldn't win Oscars. I mean, it's about Scottish heroin addicts. It's a really, really tough watch for the average Oscar voter. Mate. A bit of a come down Braveheart, isn't it? <laughs> Train Spotting, I think, deserved uh, to be best picture, perhaps in a parallel universe where that kind of film doesn't kind of scare the horses. If it's not that, then I think Fargo or Secrets and Lies were the best films that year. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, Train Spotting is the best film of that year, but it's. Yeah. Fortunately, it's historically accurate. The, the, think... the, winner of, the winner of Best Picture in 1996 was The English Patient, which is exactly the sort of film that the Oscars love to reward, like something like Out of Africa. I personally don't think it stands up that well these days but i mean the, the, the reason something like the english patient wins is it's about a doomed romance between attractive people in a period setting and fargo oh, yeah. is about someone being fed into a wood chipper in rural minnesota and that's one one of those films is going to get rewarded by the oscars and one of them isn't do you know what i mean so we could we come to the, the late 90s when things really went tits up oh no 1997 be gentle another good be year gentle. jackie brown came out which is my pick for best film of the year uh, yes. LA Confidential came out. An amazing Good Will, film. Good Will Hunting is a very good film. Yeah. I just want to put that out yeah. there. Boogie Nights, Donnie Brasco, Gross Point Blank, a very interesting sci-fi film called Gattaca, which I think is underrated. Um, who's it get? Yeah. The best film of that year... 
was not Titanic, <laughs> but Titanic won. Because it made about five billion dollars, and and that I'll tell you what that is. That is um, that that is relief. Okay, um, I know it's a nice middle brow choice, period drama, very exciting, everything, but it is basically an action blockbuster. But that it was given awards because Hollywood was so relieved that the film didn't flop at the box office because it cost so much money it would have bankrupted two studios if it hadn't made its money back. So the reason they won, the reason that Oscar was that they won like eleven Oscars or something, is because. The Oscar voters were going through a feeling which you'll recognise as a Sunderland fan. If you remember when we were in the Premier League and every season we would be in the shit all season and somehow stay up. And that feeling of relief and euphoria just after you've stayed up almost makes you forget what a shit year you've had. That's what (laughs) everyone holding an Oscar ballot was thinking when they were looking at Titanic. So, 1998. Be gentle. Now, I think The Big Lebowski was the best film that came out in 1998, but I know it's a very cult film and not everyone likes it. I think it's a bit much like, okay, yeah, another great clever in-joke. Fine. The other films that came out that year were A Simple Plan, My Name is Joe. I think Dark City is a great film from that year, which doesn't get you know recognition. American History X, um, Out of Sight. Um, the Truman Show, which was a great film, Elizabeth, which is a great film, and Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan should have won this year. I know Big Lebowski is one of my favourite films, but Saving Private Ryan is the best film this year by a by a country. Man. A lot of a lot of films could have won that year, and I wouldn't be that you know disgruntled. Uh, oh, but Shakespeare in Love, I cannot understand how Shakespeare in Love was 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 best picture. It's just it's a light romantic comedy. I don't get it. I mean, other worst Oscar winners, we've talked about Rocky, we've talked about Driving Miss Daisy, that there's also Around the World in 80 Days, 1957, which won uh, Best Picture, and no one can understand why, but this Shakespeare in Love is just an absolute head-scratcher that this one. Then another poor finish to the decade, and then I'll be handing over to you. Um, I think the best film that came out in 1999 was Fight Club. I know it divided audiences, but also being John Malkovich came out, The Insider, The Matrix, Magnolia, Toy Story 2. I'm a big fan of Summer of Sam, although not everyone loves it. And I think American Beauty is another file it with terms of endearment and ordinary people and stuff like that. It's about affluent people living in a nice house in California. Of course it wins the Oscar. Uh, no, I think The Green Mile was better. Yep. The Green Mile is my favourite Stephen King adaptation and my favourite Frank Darabont film. Uh, the Matrix came out that year, obviously not going to win, but it's better than American Beauty. Um but the biggest snub or injustice of this year, if I could just draw your attention to Best Original Song, which was won by You'll Be In My Heart from Tarzan, which is won by Phil Collins. No else was nominated that year, Dad. Tell me. Well, I know you're a big fan of that scene, When She Loved Me in Toy Story 2. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're right. Why? That's got to be the best no, no, no. song of the year. Nope. The best song of the year is Blame Canada from South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut by Trey Parker and Max Ryman. Of the of those nominated, I agree, but actually the best song that came out that year was Uncle Fucker from the same film. <laughs> which I would have I would have given my right arm to see that um, performed at the Oscars in the, in the in the show. And it's an even bigger snub because Team America doesn't get any nominations for its songs in in the decades I'm about to cover. Yeah. So look, I've I've done the nineties that sort of dragged over at eighties and nineties. I'll hand over to you and we'll see what let's say your era, your decades, um my have done. Sort of. Right. The year 2000, the films that come out this year are uh, Gladiator, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Now, the, the film that won Best Picture was Gladiator because it's, other than Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's comfortably the best film of that year. Historically not accurate at all, but it's great. Uh, best Director, though, to, a snub for Ang Lee and Ridley Scott because Steven Soderbergh won for Traffic. 
I just want to draw your attention to best original score. Where Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did win, which is very good, but Hans Zimmer didn't win for Gladiator. But yeah, other than that, this is quite a solid year. They they got it mostly right, and I don't feel too bad for Ang Lee because he's won two best director Oscars since. Yeah. Okay, so 2001, so the Oscars for 2001. Uh, A Beautiful Mind absolutely cleaned up this year, but the only th- this isn't really an injustice. Well, it turns out to be an injustice for Will Smith and Muhammad Ali, but Denzel Washington wins for Training Day because they're probably going to this point like, oh shit, we need to give Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was an apology Oscar. They went, oh shit, look at all the things he's done that we didn't give him the Oscar for. And personally, Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind was better than that, but Will Smith and Muhammad Ali, that is definitely Will Smith's best performance and he should have won for it by, by a mile. But, I- but wait... There's more. Shrek won Best Animated Feature Film instead of Monsters, Inc. Ouch. Uh, Halle Berry won Best Actress for Monsters, Inc. It basically means that Judy Dench is on the Oscars for an eight-minute performance in Shakespeare in Love instead of winning for um, Iris. Right, 2002. I'm going to put it out right. there. City of God is the best film that got made in 2000. Yes, I, I was going to say that City of God is the, one of the best films. But Although The Pianist was there, but they've done... What you're finding is... Best Picture wins, and it's like, shit, but there was another really good film this year, so we'll give that to Best Director. So The yeah. Pianist was the best picture of that, f- that year. I don't know what compelled them, but Chicago was Best Picture of 2002. The Oscars love a musical. Chicago won Best Picture. Wrong. Won Best Supporting Actress. Wrong. Yeah. Um, but Spirited Away did win Best Animated Feature Film, which is good, because Ice Age and Lilo and Stitch were nominated that year, and if they wanted to be safe, they could have nominated yeah. them. But yeah. So for 2003, this is the year where Lord of the Rings, Return of the King just absolutely swept up, yeah. and that's also a symbolic Oscar for the three years of the incredible. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it was like a body of work Oscar, wasn't it? Um, I don't. I don't think it was a hugely strong year when I looked at it. I thought Old Boy was the best film, but again, not re- not released in the US in time. Um, but I don't really have any complaints for this year. Um, 2004. Now, it's it's a pretty solid year. This one. Um, Million Dollar Baby wins Best Picture. I think it should have been Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Yeah, maybe. It's a bit of an out-there film, I guess. Hotel Rwanda was, uh, wasn't was nominated for Best Picture or Best Director. And I think a bit of an odd choice, seeing as Hotel Rwanda is a... I don't want to say great, because it's a horrifying film, but it is. But other than that, I've got no complaints for 2005. Yeah. We're starting to get closer to my era and when shit starts to hit the fan. Yeah. So for the year 2005, yeah, here we go. Um, Crash won Best Picture. That's one of the worst Best Picture decisions of all time. Fuck knows how that happened, because even Jack Nicholson, if you, you go to YouTube, I don't know if you've seen it, when Jack Nicholson announces the award, he goes, Crash, and he's kind of like, what? Yeah, he can't believe it. Again, a lot a lot of the characters in that film are people that the Oscar voters would recognise. Brokeback Mountain should have won that year. Um, this is where we get, this is where we, I'm starting to talk about not as much snubs, but almost like unfair. So Heath Ledger did Brokeback Mountain as Ellis, Ennis Delmar, sorry, and Joaquin Phoenix played Johnny Cash in Mortal Line. Now, I think that's my favourite performance of the year, but it's just unfortunate that Philip Seymour Hoffman decided to play Truman Capote. Mm. It's weird, though, that the two people that were snubbed this year, Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix, both went on to win Oscars for the same character. That is very interesting. We continue where we at now. So we're for, for year two Best picture. Okay, here we go. So you're going to have some comments about this. So, best picture. Um, nominated, we have The Queen, Little Miss Sunshine, Letters from Iwo Jima, uh, Babel, and Best Picture went to The Departed. And similarly, Best Director was won by Martin Scorsese for The Departed. 
yeah, I mean, obviously, as far as Scorsese is concerned, it's long overdue, but not even close to being his best film. Apart from best supporting actor, I kind of like this year. Forrest Whitaker did Last King of Scotland. He, I thought he was amazing. Comfortably the best performance of that year. Um, well, from what I can see, there's nominated Leonardo DiCaprio was in Blood Diamond. It's not as good as Edie Amin. Um, best actress Helen Mirren for the Queen. Don't think you've any complaints about that, do you? No, but if you you play the Queen of England, you, you are going to get awards thrown at you. Wear a crash helmet to the theatre, you know. I don't have many complaints with it. Yeah. Um, that was 2006, so this is 2007. Uh, best picture this year was No Country for Old Men. I don't really... It's, it is a really good film. I think it's one of the best films of the year. I, th- I think it's a defensible choice. I think Zodiac was the best film of the year, personally. Zodiac didn't get nominated. Yeah, I know. Um, which is bizarre. David Fincher's not not appreciated at all by the Oscars. Yeah. But No Country for Old Men sweeps out Best Picture, Best Director. Daniel Day-Lewis wins for There Will Be Blood, which is probably fair. It was a very good performance. I think it's my favourite Daniel Day-Lewis performance, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, he was, he was uh, amazing in that. This Is England came out this year, and I think it's quite interesting that people will, will shower awards on films set in England in country houses, but don't pay any attention to films set on council estates in, in England. Sure. It's a pretty solid year. Ratatouille wins Best Animated Feature. Yeah, I don't think anyone came away from this award ceremony wondering what people were thinking, put it that way. Yeah. Um, okay, this is this is it. 2008. Here we go. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Right. Now, I love Danny Boyle. Don't get me wrong. I love Danny Boyle. He's a great director. Slumdog Millionaire is a good film. It's a film that I will, if it's on the telly, I will watch it. Yeah. But the best picture of 2008... Was Dark Knight. It was the Dark Knight. Well, yeah, best original score went to Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, Hans Zimmer wasn't nominated, um, but Milk was. Um, uh, the score for Dark Knight is stunning. I mean, Dark Knight has the problem of being a superhero film at a time when superhero films were not getting nominated for things. That, that's okay, fair enough, but Milk was nominated, Wally was nominated, Defiance was nominated, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button was nominated, and that was composed by Alexander Dayplan. and he did the score for A Monkey's Tale, yep. so you can fuck up. <laughs> Frost vs. Nixon got nominated for Best Picture. As much as I enjoy it, it's not The Dark Knight. It's just, it's no. just appalling. Yep. Dark Knight. Well, the Dark Knight, I'm pretty sure, is like in the top five films of all time, on both IMDb and maybe Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes. Yeah. It's not even nominated for Best Picture, yep. but... What I will say, that there is some redemption for the Academy here for sticking off the, the Hurt Locker, and rightfully so. Um, but I think the Hurt Locker is the best film of this year, by far. 2009? Yes. Yeah. The Hurt Locker was nominated for Best Picture, beating Avatar, yeah. uh, Black Side, District 9, and Education. Inglorious Bastards, I personally think that's one of my favourite Tarantino films. Best Director, Catherine Bigelow. Um... I'm just. I just really enjoy the. It was two fingers up to the to Avatar, who everyone thought was. Well, there's win. no. There's no sense in Avatar winning Best Picture. I, I, t- I tell you what's interesting, right? I tell you what. Whether Hurt Locker deserves a lot of recognition. Do you know what the Hurt Locker's budget was? Like fifty p. It was about eleven million dollars. Yeah. Sorry, fifteen million dollars. So it had something like one twentieth of Avatar's budget, and it actually, the, uh, the Hurt Locker won quite a few good technical awards, because the sound, I know I've talked about the Academy not really knowing what they're talking about, but things like the sound and the and the visuals of the Hurt Locker were amazing, with not very much money. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, I, I agree that Hurt Locker was the, the best picture that year. They've absolutely, they, they've 
completely, you know, shithouse James Cameron here because everyone was going crazy for Avatar. And Avatar's not that great. It is dances with smoke. Yeah. But I do like the fact that they've they've heaped praise on James Cameron's ex-wife, Catherine Bigelow. They've absolutely cuckolded him. But the thing is, it's peak shithousery from the Academy here. And then they up the shithousery by shithousing their own shithousery by awarding Avatar Best Cinematography. Despite it being... How does, entirely- how does that happen? It's animated. Best original score was won by Michael Giacchino. Yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer was nominated for Sherlock Holmes, but of course he didn't win. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, they've they've somewhat redeemed themselves this year and given nominations to films like District Nine, which was nice to see because that was that was a great film. Mm. Um, but yeah, n- no real complaints. Here we go, two thousand and ten. Okay, so. The King's Speech is a good film, and it, it won Best Picture, and I can kind of understand why, because it's a film, a, a true story about the, the actual king not being able to, you know, overcome, what being able to overcome his speech impediment and being able to deliver speech as king. Yes, it is a good film, but it's not Inception by Christopher Nolan, where Inception is comfortably the best film of 2010. Was it even nominated? It wasn't nominated for. It was nominated for. Yeah, I mean, they've expanded. They've expanded it by this time. Now you're getting like nine or ten nominees for best picture, and the old days you only got five. You wonder if they were got recommended. I, I think I I wouldn't have had a problem with Inception winning. I, I I love the Inception. Social Network was also released this year. The Social Network was was better, and David Fincher does get nominated, but. Joel and Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen get nominated for True Grit. True Grit doesn't deserve to be anywhere fucking near these these Oscars over Inception. Best original score won by the Social Network. Trent Reznor and actor Chris Ross. It's not like Hans Zimmer was nominated for Inception. Oh yeah, he was. Hans Zimmer was nominated for Inception. I didn't win. Um, bizarrely, two thousand and eleven was a weak year. I've watched some of the artists. It's a bit boring. The artists cleaned up this year, and I've just said that's probably fair. It was a bit of a weak year with no proper challengers. Hugo won a couple of awards, but on the whole, no complaints except for the lack of quality. The I, I think there were some good films that came out this year. Um, obviously, I love The Raid too, but that's not an Oscar film, evidently. But Shame came out this year, which is just I think too strong, uh, you know, in in its subject matter for the Oscars. Uh, but Steve McQueen did a stunning job in that film. Uh, it is. There's balls in your face. Yeah, Drive came out this year. A, a quite an interesting film called Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, the Guard, Tyrannosaur, and We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, oh, yes. Um, Lynn Ramsey is... We'll, we'll come to the year that she did uh, You Were Never Really Here, but Lynn Ramsey is, is an amazing director. Well, for other than that, I can't really go any complaints because that year is a bit... Not, a it's, bit bold. it's not a strong year. Okay. From 2011, we go to 2012, where Argo won Best Picture. Um, I reckon this was second and third on everybody's ballot paper, and one and one one on proportional representation. Personally, the best film of that year for me is Django Unchained. Django Unchained is a great film. Um, I love Zero Dark Thirty and The Master as well. I would I would have no problem with Django Unchained winning best best uh, film that year either, though. Uh, other than that, it just seems a bit of a waste to give Ang Lee another best director Oscar for fucking Life of Pi. So this year is when Oscars start becoming really difficult because they start being a pain in the arse with how they spread out the Oscars to ensure that people go to see these films yep. to generate more Hollywood. Yeah. This year, 2013, is the year 12 Years a Slave came out. Yep. 
which won Best Picture. Discovered this show. Uh, if you look at what is nominated against, American Hustle, shite. Captain Phillips, not shite, but not the best picture of the year. Dallas Buyers Club, not shite, not the best picture of the film. You've got films like The Wolf of Wall Street. I can't believe American Hustle was nominated because it was shite, but you got you got some of the films like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, Philomena, um, Nebraska, Her, Gravity. Yeah, 12 Years of Slave stands out by itself, doesn't it? It was the best picture that year. And subsequently, it is therefore the best directed film of this year. But they don't do that because they give it Alfonso Cuarón for Gravity. Now, Gravity is an excellent film. I I will happily watch it if it's on telly. It's only like it's only an hour and a half. It's only like eighty five minutes, but it's a great watch. But it's not the best directed film of that year. It's, it's, no, it's it, they've they've given him an award for like the technical achievement of like a realistic depiction of space and stuff. And uh, you yeah. know, again, without going over too much ground that we went over in our previous uh, conversation, Steve McQueen did stuff with the camera and with the lighting and with the performances and with what was on in the rivers and on the plants of the environment that he filmed. It, it's it's a complete piece of direction, absolutely and Steve. utterly complete. Best original score. Guess what won? Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what won because it wasn't Hans Zimmer for twelve years of space. It wasn't nominated. <laughs> uh, oh my Steven, lord! Even price for Gravity. I've, the score for twelve years of space is haunting. It is harrowing, and you're giving it to Gravity. Yeah, Gravity had a, a good score, but it didn't like jump out. But we move on. Two thousand and fourteen. So 2014 was, I think, was that the year of Birdman. Yeah, Birdman won uh, the best my, picture. My rants have been getting gradually longer as my notes have gone on, so it's hard to find your <laughs> starts. But we have Boyhood losing out. Now, when I first watched Boyhood, I was kind of like, meh, not a lot happens. But when you actually sit back and appreciate the achievement of what it is, it's incredible. It's a tw- they, they filmed it over 12 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, though. If if a film takes another couple of viewings for people to realise exactly how great it is, it's more likely to be seen as great in the long term than it is in, during a short voting window. If you see what I mean. Oh, I'd just like to draw your attention to best original score. Do you know what one um, best original score that you dad? <laughs> Alexander Desplat Budapest Hotel. Yeah, shorten that to uh, abbreviate that to GBH, and that's basically what they're committing. <laughs> Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar is one of the best things that anyone has ever set to music. It's absolutely phenomenal. 2015. (laughs) This was a really good year, actually. It's a lot of good good films come out this year. For us personally, Spotlight won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also really enjoyed Mad Max Fury Road. I really enjoyed The Martian. I did like The Red. Um, What am I not to this? Um... Yeah, rightly won. Revenant, which won Best Director, which is, which I've which I've written is like I don't really care about. It's just a bit weird that Alejandro Iñárritu won two awards, you know, consecutively. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't really give a shit about yeah. Spotlight won Best. But that's the most important thing. Yeah, I was uh, Spotlight was a good film. I think. Look, if you're talking about the achievement in direction, um, which I think is what you actually what the award is actually called, Mad Max Fury Road is, uh, yeah. you know, was uh, thoroughly deserving that. Uh, yeah, I would have no complaints, but Spotlight deserved to win. So nominating. Yeah, Spot- yes, I don't, yeah, it's not it's not a controversial year, I don't think. No real complaints. Yeah. We're now on 2016, which is where the year everyone went mental for La La Land. Yeah. Uh, I've just said this. This is the year the Academy seemed a bit clueless, and it's hard to comment on what they're doing when I when they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Uh, they announced La La Land as best picture when it was actually Moonlight. No, I wouldn't have any problems with La La Land being best picture or Moonlight. They were both great films. Mm. Just looks a bit unprofessional, doesn't it? Yeah, a bit of a bit of a nothing year. But this is the year where I start to get very angry. 
um, because Get Out didn't win in awards, and The Shape of Water did. Now, I love Guillermo del Toro, but The Shape of Water is not the best picture of that year. He wasn't the best director of that year. Uh, highly enjoyable film, but Get Out is comfortably the best film of that year. You, you can, you can. I will die on this hill. Yeah, you know, Get, Get Out was was an absolutely amazing film, brilliantly made. Other films nominated: Dunkirk, hated. So, I mean, I I didn't. I liked Dunkirk better than you did, but I was disappointed by it, and I didn't, I didn't really like it. And you know, that's a whole different discussion. Dunkirk, and it's, it's just a classic example of if Christopher Nolan does a, a sci-fi film that happens to be amazingly inventive and brilliant in so many ways, like Inception. He doesn't get the recognition for Inception, but he will get the, 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 the more recognition for a, a serious-minded, dramatic, you know, period drama about the Second World War, because that's that's how the Oscars are built. But yeah, are we on are we on our last one? I think we're on we're two more. Set, we're on our second. Two more years. So this is two thousand and eighteen. Um, I've, I've just kind of written a nothing year. I'm not I'm not sure if Green Book was definitely the best film of the year, but there's no real controversy around just. I did enjoy Black Klansman. Yeah, I'm I'm going to put my hand up here and say you were never really here was the best film. Um, Joaquin Phoenix's performance should have won an Oscar. That film was absolutely stunning. It probably it probably had the problem that it was quite a small release and came out early in the year. And if you really, really want to win an Oscar, you need to start releasing it in about November time. The Favourite, I thought, was an amazing film. I thought The Favourite was was hard done by as well. And The Death of Stalin. We're probably, as we get towards the end of the decade, we might... You see, we, we've given ourselves a chance to, to to look back at films from longer ago that have reached to the test of time. And we don't, yeah. know, we don't know what films released in the last two, three years are going to do in terms of standing the test of time, do we? But yeah, um, bit, bit of a boring year to be honest. And I think you have, I think you have to look in sort of some of the dark, you know, darker, shadier corners for the best films that year. And Oscars are always about more prestige pictures, aren't they? So, 2019, Parasite won best direct, uh, best picture, and best director. Which it's weird that they'll they'll do that thing where they spread it. They'll give the best picture to, uh, to one film and then best director to the other. I think it's it's great to see Parasite win. I, I did enjoy Parasite. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a very good film. Very different to what we're used to. And I think 1917 deserves more recognition than it got. Did it win? Did 1917 win? Um, it was nominated for a lot, wasn't it? Um, I, I, I haven't seen it yet, but obviously what I've heard is that you know they you know it's like a single camera shot the whole time. There's if someone's actually gone out of their way to try and do something as as different as that. For a film, that for a topic or a, like a setting, which is quite difficult to do, where usually like war films have thousands of cuts per minute, to have it, you know, engage like that the entire time was. You know, yeah, really I think I saw an interview with Roger Deakins. I've not seen the film, but I would do watch an interview with Roger Deakins. Says you can't exactly ask people to stop and wait for the light because you just kind of go, "Here's the camera, go," and oh, it's a completely no, different challenge. Roger Deakins won for nineteen seventeen, though. Yes, although yeah, the the cinematography in this instance wasn't about getting the right lighting for it. It was about what an achievement it was to do what he did with the camera to make the whole thing look like a single take. That, obviously, Sam Mendes said, I'm going to need the best cinematographer in the business to pull this off, and, and so it so it turned out. Um, but yeah, we see Joaquin Phoenix finally winning a Best Actor Oscar. Yeah, that's an uh, apology Oscar for all the times he should have won. I don't think Renee Zellweger deserved to win for um, Judy and Judy, Judy Garland. I think it's just one of those things like, oh my God, she's playing Judy fucking Garland. Real-life character who sings. They love it. But I thought Cynthia Erivo in in Harriet as Harriet Tubman was a better performance, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a much better story than Judy Gar- Garland's story, personally. Um, that's the only snub or injustice I'd say. Yeah, it was nice to see um, 
Jojo Rabbit win, Taika Waititi winning an Oscar. Um, Parasite won Best Original Screenplay. Uh, again, no complaints. Tarantino was nominated. Mendes was nominated. And Tarantino doesn't need another screenplay Oscar, does he? He needs a Best Director. Honorary awards for David Lynch. I yeah, they've kind, they've kind of admitted, David, you're never going to win one. So just take this. We're going to take a brief intermission now. Sorry to interrupt the flow. The second part of this month's episode is available to download now and includes the concluding part of James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson covering the rest of our Oscar chat. Then we will have the regular hidden gem, which is Ridley Scott's The Duelists, a One That Got Away feature on David Cronenberg's Total Recall, and a remake hate watch of the controversial 2016 version of Ghostbusters. That's all for this episode three, part one of the Double Real Film podcast. I wrote, recorded, mixed and edited the episode with the help of Anchor FM and Audacity. And as ever, everything that sounded good was down to them, and everything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. I'll give you a full set of credits at the end of part two, including some details on the films and features we've discussed this month. See you on the other side.